Uh, in the interest of time, everyone, uh, let's get started. Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Kevin Chung. Uh, Dr. Kevin Chung is coming from San Antonio today. Um, he is a colonel in, uh, in the medical corps at Brook Army Medical Center where he serves as the chief of the Department of Medicine. Um, he's the, uh, or at least was, a critical care consultant to the Surgeon General. Um, he's uh, had a, a very successful career from starting out at West Point years ago uh, to Georgetown Medical School nearby um, to continuing um, various military uh, residencies and fellowships and uh, critical care, most you know, recently at Walter Reed nearby. Um, he has been very involved in so many different areas in critical care and trauma and resuscitation and burns and uh, you name it. He's, it seems like he's done it. I could be here for a full 40 minutes going through his CV. I won't, but just a few highlights um, further. He's the uh, vice president. He was a, a vice president of the American Burn Association. He's on the Board of Trustees of the American Burn Association. He chairs the Military Burn Research Program at Fort Detrick. Um, he has published numerous articles on the topic and has uh, written a chapter soon to come out in uh, Perillo and Dellinger's uh, critical care book um, on uh, critical care management of the severely burned patient. So, I mean, perfect topic for today, and uh, thank you so much for coming. All right, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. I was a fellow at Walter Reed in 2003 and five, and uh, learned under Nader Habashi. A lot of the principles that uh, you'll see popping up on and off uh, throughout this talk, you'll see that there, uh, there are some clear links to the way things are done here. So, all right, so uh, just some uh, disclaimers, uh, some grants and have a patent. Don't make any money off of it, unfortunately. Uh, this is uh, where I work, and so you'll see, uh, this is uh, BAMC right here, Brook Army Medical Center. Uh, this over here is uh, the building that um, uh, houses the Institute of Surgical Research. And so the Institute of Surgical Research uh, has been around for quite some time. If uh, you haven't uh, heard about it, it it's, wor it's worth uh, uh, sort of reading about it and its history. But uh, Basil Pruitt made the Institute of Surgical uh, Research famous. And... Uh, in about 1950, um, the Institute uh, came to be as Congress decided we needed to pay attention uh, to burn research and infectious diseases. And so since then, it's uh, sort of uh, uh, grew its roots in burn research, uh, but recently became uh, uh, known for uh, balanced resuscitation, tourniquets, and uh, even Reboa. So a lot of uh, combat casualty care stuff uh, and research occurs there. And this is where I work. Here, this is the trauma tower, and um, uh, about 12 years into uh, after my fellowship, I, I spent uh, in the burn center uh, taking care of burn casualties, and uh, that's my experience in burns. Uh, so this is the trauma tower, uh, the ISR burn center. We have about 800 burn admissions a year, which is uh, on the high side in terms of burn centers in the country. Uh, in contrast, the ho hospital center uh, in D.C. has about 300, 400 a year. So I want to start by uh, trying to sort of correlate burns to trauma um, and probably to very sick medical patients. Um, for years, Dr. Pruitt, this is Basil Pruitt, uh, tried to make the argument that uh, burns, burn injury and the host response to burn injury was really the universal model for trauma. Uh, and it was really for the longest time just his opinion and his opinion alone. Uh, not until this study was published was he really vindicated. So you probably may be aware of this study. Uh, it got a lot of press, got published in the proceedings, uh, where uh, they demonstrated, this is from the Glue Grant, they demonstrated that mouse models poorly predict the genomic responses of various uh, inflammatory conditions such as trauma, burns, and sepsis. Um, that was the main point, but uh, sort of deep in the weeds uh, of this study, they compared the various forms of inflammatory conditions to each other. Uh, and so what you'll see is that, so this is burns, the genomic response and expression. This is trauma. And this is simulated sepsis. They took a bunch of human volunteers and injected them with uh, LPS uh, and then, you know, washed them for four or five days. Probably a bunch of medical students volunteer for this. Uh, and, and then uh, looked at their genetic response, and you can see that uh, this happened. 
If you took real medical patients who are sick, I'm sure the pattern would be very similar to this. But regardless, uh, it's pretty clear that the host response to tissue injury from burn, from a genotic, genomic standpoint, is very, very highly correlated uh, to tissue, the host response to tissue injury and trauma. Okay? And that probably um, is the same for any uh, other uh, types of injury where you have lots of ischemia and reperfusion. So one of the conclusions of this study is that if a researcher is able to find or drug, a drug or therapy for one of these conditions in people, it probably works for all of them. Okay? So I want you to think about that as I focus on burns throughout the entire talk. Okay, so burn care. Uh, this is the unfortunate uh, victim of a helicopter crash, uh, civilian helicopter crash, just went up in flames, 99% burn. He didn't make it. Uh, but it's a great picture of uh, uh, burns and escherotomies done uh, uh, well and uh, adequately. Uh, but really, um, as an intensivist, medical intensivist, I'm not a surgeon, uh, one thing that I've learned over 12 years taking care of these burn patients is that very little uh, matters uh, when it comes to critical care if the burn wound is not addressed. You've got to address the burn wound. Much like a dead extremity, if you have dead stuff, it's got to come off. And that, that dead stuff, when it comes off, uh, creates this raw surface, this wound bed. It needs to be covered. Until this happens, the patient's at risk for lots of different things like multi-organ failure, electrolyte imbalance, metabolic dysregulation, and uh, sepsis. And so this is what we're after. Uh, and and uh, you know, that's really the, the ideal result. So patients who are, say, 50, 60% burns, um, by the time they come out of the OR, after all the burn wounds are excised, a lot of times they're either autografted simultaneously, sometimes they're staged, but that's a four liter blood loss during the excision. So you're excising burn wound, just basically skinning the patient, taking all the dead tissue off. That, that's a four liter blood loss for, for during that OR. And so that's another insult. And so if you think and consider different, a variety of uh, uh, different human conditions where the body gets insulted by something, right? Uh, surgery, sepsis, trauma. Uh, this paradigm usually occurs. You get this profound host response, inflammation occurs, you get SIRS, you, you can develop multi-organ failure. Sometimes you could uh, support them through, sometimes they die and they recover. That happens maybe once, sometimes twice, uh, few, very few times, multiple times, and you're dealing with a very chronically ill cr critical care patient. In burns, uh, every patient goes through this cycle over and over and over again until the burn wounds are closed. So they're not out of the woods until they're less than 10% open. Okay. So you could see why uh, very little uh, that we do in critical care matters. The, the, those burn wounds, if you don't optimize the conditions of wound healing, those burn wounds don't heal, no matter what you do in terms of organ support, it ain't going to matter. And so that, that's really the major, major point. And if you don't do that, if you don't close the wounds, this is what happens. This is a body that is overcome with aspergillus, bread mold, essentially. This is an unfortunate case of a soldier, a female soldier, who is refueling a, a generator. 40% uh, burns. It's a big burn, but it, it's survivable. She was 24. Uh, her first surgery uh, was unsuccessful, however, uh, as all her autographs fell off. Okay, those, you know, cells, the uh, split the thickness uh, uh, cells needed to come from somewhere. So all the donor sites were open, and they converted, and so she went from a 40% burn to a 80% burn, and from that point on. She could not heal. She did not heal ever. And then this is what happened. So this phenomenon of uh, every time uh, that patient gets goes, going to the OR, they get this inflammatory surge. We observe it all the time. Patients go for a debridement. They uh, come out on three pressors. You resuscitate them for a while. And then they get better. And then all the capillary leak uh, gets better. And then repeat cycle multiple times every time the patient goes to the OR. This has been nicely documented in, in, in Burns, Dr. Jesse's group. Okay, so really the name of the game here is trying to get the wounds closed as quickly as possible. And what we do in critical care is all we're doing is supporting the patient and allowing uh, for these wounds to heal and optimizing the conditions of wound healing. These concepts are not foreign and it's probably similar to what you guys do in trauma. 
uh, allowing, uh, improving or optimizing conditions of wound healing. And so I like this concept. This is a concept uh, sort of uh, popularized by uh, Kellum, John Kellum. But many times you're thinking about trying to find the silver bullet. Well, flip that over and uh, during a hospitalization, in the course of a hospitalization, your patient is getting, uh, you know, fired at uh, via these multi, uh, multiple bullets and all these complications can occur and all you're trying to do is protect the patient from all these uh, uh, complications. Okay, so let's start with optimal resuscitation. So I don't have to talk about in depth with this group the pathophysiology of burn, uh, but the bottom line is you get capillary leak everywhere. Uh, specifically uh, in burn tissue but also non-burn tissue. Uh, you start out with a hypovolemic shock initially and then after a while that uh, the host response to the tissue injury creates this distributive shock uh, that becomes more global, okay? And so you get extensive capillary leak. And so the ABA has published some guidelines, and this is what you learn in ABLS, right? So uh, the uh, burn resuscitation formula, where you're supposed to calculate the initial fluid rate using either the modified Brook or the Parkland. Uh, and if you're taking an exam, use the Parkland. Uh, to calculate your initial fluid rate, but you take it, uh, multiply it by half, and you give the first half over eight hours. Everybody's familiar with that method. Uh, well, that never really happens in real life, or it never did. Uh, we would just uh, figure out the initial fluid rate, and then we would never arbitrarily just shut down the fluids or cut it by half at eight hours. That would be, uh, you know, not good medical care because the patient is still not making urine. How could you decrease the uh, fluids by half. So that, this was, uh, practically speaking, not something that occurred, and it still doesn't occur uh, to this day. And so really, the, reasons, uh, the reason that these resuscitation formulas exist is to calculate that initial fluid rate, nothing else. And so surely there's got to be a better way. So we came up, oh, before I go there, let me talk about the starting rate. So does it really matter whether you start at 2 or you start at 4 in terms of calculating your fluid rate? If you've done the calculation or you've gone through the calculation yourself, you'll realize that's a huge window. All right? it's, it could be the difference between starting at 500 cc's an hour to a liter an hour. That's a huge difference. Okay? Does it really matter? Well, yes, it does. When we looked at our data, uh, if you started at 2, you ended up with a 4 cc resus at the end of 24 hours. If you started at 4, you ended up with a 6 cc resus at the end of uh, 24 hours. And getting more fluid was associated with more resuscitation morbidity, okay, more compartment syndromes, more ARDS, more compartment, abdominal compartment syndrome, et cetera. And so it just makes sense that give more fluid, more, uh, you know, worse outcomes. Uh, and so that was it. And then I, I wondered, well, you know, we're teaching ABLS and these formulas. What, what are EMS providers using? And so I took uh, the fluid rate that they were, you know, I averaged it out and just figured out estimated what their initial fluid rate would have been based on the fluid that they received during the pre-hospital uh, course, and then calculated backwards what, uh, you know, formula they would have used. So uh, you would think that everybody would be either a two or four or somewhere in between. Well, it was really all over the place. It's clear, and anecdotally this, you know, bears out. If you talk to any EMS provider, they'll be like, Parkland what? You know? And so nobody uses any formula. You know, when, you're, when you have a mass casualty, eight burn victims come to the ER, to an ER anywhere in the country. They're not going to sit there, take their time to calculate the parkland. I guarantee you. They'll just start something, okay? And uh, ABLS is starting to get, uh, uh, you know, get, get this idea, and they've recommended some standard uh, starting fluid, fluid rates. And so, um, so that, that's something that's uh, coming, but they, uh, there's, surely there, there's another way. Okay, so bottom line, formulas are just a starting point. You need to, for testing purposes, you still have to memorize the, the formulas, okay? Uh, and, and you have to go through the drill coming up with the initial fluid rate. But practically speaking, what we've been doing is uh, this, the rule of 10. So use the rule of nines. This is what we've been teaching all the pre-hospital providers, and uh, use the rule of nines to estimate your burn size. Most of the time, that estimation is wrong, so just estimate doesn't matter. Just eyeball it. They're, they look like about a 60%. And then just multiply by 10. That's your initial fluid rate. This is the rule of 10. If they're heavy, then you can add 100 cc's to every 10 kilos. 
but you don't really need to do that, I don't think, because most patients fit in that, in that window. And so uh, this is an in silico study where we demonstrated that it covers most patients. These patients here, okay, don't exist or they're going to die. Uh, here, it doesn't really matter, okay? So what's your initial rate if you have four simultaneous patients? 30% burn, 40% burn, 70% burn, a little uh, on the heavy side. It's easy to do that in your head. Just multiply that by 10, their TBSA by 10. And then what you do is apply basic critical care principles to resuscitate them and use a compilation of various endpoints to titrate the fluid up and down over time. Uh, this rule of 10 formula has been uh, uh, advocated by the, uh, and adopted by the military and now is in uh, the military version of uh, pre-hospital uh, life support. And then it's already caught on in the emergency medicine community. It's on blogs and stuff. So it's starting to catch on. I was on the ABLS committee trying to argue inclusion of the rule of 10 in the real ABLS and as well as ATLS, but we're not there yet. I was uh, denied. All right, so once you start your initial fluid rate, Okay, try to maintain the blood pressure lower than what you're comfortable with and try to keep them relatively hypovolemic. That's, that sounds kind of off, doesn't it? Okay, but any effort to normalize any arbitrary, you know, intravascular volume target like CVP, you're going to over-resuscitate. Any effort to try to normalize blood pressure, you're going to over-resuscitate. Okay, if your MAP goal in general is right at 65, for a burn patient, make it 55. Okay, if your CVP goal, I'm just using an arbitrary marker, is around 8 to 12, make it around 4. Okay, just lower what your threshold is. All you're looking for is the minimum fluids re uh, required to maintain organ perfusion. Okay, if you don't do that, you're going to end up with all sorts of resuscitation morbidity. Okay, what is that? You can have SCAR syndrome, okay, which you relieve when you have a circumferential burn. By the way, an SCAR syndrome, when you see that, it's not, or when you see circumferential burns and you're afraid or you're uh, concerned about SCAR syndrome, it's not an emergent surgery. It's an urgent surgery. What's the difference? An emergent surgery, okay, needs to happen right there and then. An urgent surgery, you have an hour or two, okay? So you don't need to do it in the TRU you can wait until the patient gets admitted to the ICU under a controlled setting, et cetera, et cetera, proper meds, okay? Uh, you can get orbital compartment syndrome. I'm sure uh, some of you uh, encounter that in some patients, but uh, your intraocular pressures get so high, over 20, that you get pinching of the optic nerve. They need canthotomies. You can get uh, compartment syndrome, thoracic SCAR syndrome, a lot of ventilator challenges, uh, abdominal SCAR syndrome, and then what's the worst thing is the abdominal compartment syndrome. And so we had a rash of this in the beginning of the war uh, and described our experience. Uh, and essentially, the body is just, the bottom line is the body is just not designed to be able to take the insult of a large burn and an open abdomen together. They, they all died. Uh, and just, it's just not survivable. Uh, big burn plus abdominal compartment syndrome. And so uh, we made every effort uh, to try to decrease the prevalence of abdominal compartment syndrome. So um, I'll tell you how to do that, okay? And so how do you know how much is too much as you're resuscitating the patient? Uh, so we have this thing that we do, and uh, this is a metric, right? So uh, total, vo uh, total uh, cc's of volume indexed to weight in a 24-hour period. So this, we call this the IV index. It's based on a paper uh, published in Journal of Trauma in 2000. Ten patients they looked at. 10 patients, and now like there's an index named after the first author, okay? So 10 patients, what they did was they correlated the CCs per kg index to abdominal compartment or uh, intra-abdominal uh, hypertension. And, uh, and so we use this index where at 24 hours or at, at around 12 hours, whenever you're, wherever you're calculating this, where, uh, wherever you are at your resuscitation, you project the 24-hour recess volume. So if you're going, going at a liter an hour, at hour 12, you say, okay, if we continue at this trajectory and continue to give a liter an hour for the next 12 hours, how much total fluid am I going to get? Okay, and then you divide by weight, and thus you have your IV index. If your IV index is uh, greater than 250, then you know you're in trouble. You're heading down the road of abdominal compartment syndrome. Okay, we also have this other metric where uh, you divide uh, the cc's per kg by TBSA just to compare your resuscitation 
to traditional formulas. Okay? So we'll say, okay, the patient got a, uh, was projected to have a 4cc recess by Parkland, but then ended up getting a 9cc uh, a recess. Okay? That's, how, that's how we talk in rounds. All right, so what can you do when you pro you're, you're projecting and you're worried about a runaway resuscitation, which is how we define it. So as you're resuscitating the patient, uh, you're in hour eight, patient has not made any urine, you're already at 1.5 liters an hour, um, and the patient's hypotensive, you're on three pressors. What do you do? You know you're going to be in trouble, okay, if you continue going down this route, crystalloid alone resuscitation. And so what we do is we throw in a couple of adjuncts. We use albumin. So I'll start albumin when they come in, actually. It used to be poo-pooed, and, uh, you know, you, you would get in trouble if you started albumin before hour 12. But now the community has relaxed their opinion, and uh, now we're giving albumin earlier and earlier to the point where we just start albumin when we think the patient's going to be in trouble. Okay? We'll add FFP, and I'll, I'll, give you, I'll show you something. That, that, and there's a study that looked at FFP in burn resuscitation, and many burn centers, a few burn centers I know, go with FFP right from, uh, from the get-go. Uh, and then there, there's hypertonic uh, uh, lactated saline that's been used in studies in the burn community. Uh, that's just not commercially available now. It's not 3% saline. It's this hypertonic lactated saline, okay, which is a little bit different. Um, and uh, there's a, these other adjuncts that you can use if you uh, think you're going to be in trouble. Vitamin C at high doses. We're not talking the palmaric doses. We're talking, you know, like six grams of an hour of vitamin C. Um, my, my feeling, in, and many of my colleagues feel that it's just an osmotic diuretic. And so you produce more urine, and thus you think you're perfusing, but you may not be perfusing. And so that's, that's something. And, of course, you're going to give less volume because you, you have lots of urine output. Uh, because you're titrating your, your fluids based on your output. So, uh, you know, but there was a randomized controlled trial done in Japan, a single center trial that showed that it decreased fluid volumes, and there's some animal studies that show that the antioxidant uh, uh, effect of vitamin C may be beneficial, okay? And then when we get into trouble, uh, there are burn centers that use plasma exchange for blood purification. Uh, at our center, uh, we're using more high-volume hemofiltration. Now, high-volume hemofiltration early on in burn shock is problematic. Why? Uh, how many of you have tried to do a central line in a fresh burn? Right? So what does that blood look like? It's like sludge, right? They're so hemoconcentrated, their uh, uh, hematocrits are like 65. And so try to, you know, drive sludge through a hemodialysis filter. It just doesn't work. So, so early on, if, if you're in burn shock, you want to resuscitate them a little bit, hemodilute them, and then put them on high volume. That, that's something that uh, is missed sometimes, and, and then you end up clotting the filter every ten, you know, hour. And so um, this is what I'm going to show you. This, this is, in tra is a trauma model. It's a mouse model. But we basically took a bunch of rats, our group. This is an ISR group. Took a bunch of rats and looked at uh, uh, microcirculation, among other things. But we looked at endothelial uh, uh, width. So it's glycocalyx and uh, syndicin 1, all that stuff. And so what we saw, this is the bottom line, is just Cool, I, I just want to show you this. So this is sham. So we bled them out and then resuscitated them. This is normal saline. This is glycocalyx thickness now, okay? This is LR, okay? Not, not any different. This is albumin. But look at, look at this, FFP. There's absolutely no syndicate one shedding. The glycocalyx is preserved. There's no capillary leak with FFP. Just food for thought. This is, I know this has been replicated in other animal models from other labs. This is what we're seeing here. And so based on the cumulative evidence, people are starting to uh, use FFP, plasma, as a primary resuscitative fluid. Now, you're limited by supply and other things, but, um, you know, we're back to World War II, okay, FFP. All right, so optimizing resuscitation. So all you're doing is trying to maintain organ perfusion using basic care principles that all of you already know. Okay, so if, you're, if you ever encounter a big burn patient, just use the rule of 10 and then apply basic critical care principles, okay, without, you know, with uh, being hypervigilant about not over-resuscitating, okay, at the least physiologic cost. Now, one thing I, did, I, I, did, I forgot to mention, you don't want to bolus these patients, okay, so when they're hypotensive, you know, when you give them a two, three liter bolus, that's not going to do them any good. It may transiently increase their MAP but all that stuff is going to extravasate, 
Imagine pouring fluid as fast as you can through a sieve, and then there's a cup that you know uh, it surrounds that sieve. Okay, and you're going to fill up that fill up that cup very quickly. And so uh, all you're trying to do is slowly uh, and gradually keep uh, the uh, intravascular volume at a certain level so that you have perfusion. That's all you're trying to do. So maintain organ perfusion using basic critical care principles at the least physiologic cost. Okay, that's what you're trying to do in burn resuscitation. Okay, so I'm going to sort of shift to organ support. Um, prevalence of organ failure is high in burns, although uh, frequency of burns is very low across the nation. We know that these patients get very sick very quickly. And so, um, you know, this is something that we've been uh, sort of trying to track over time uh, during uh, uh, the last 15 years. So acute kidney injury is something that we've been interested in for quite some time. Uh, we're applying, you know, you know about the KDGO guidelines probably, the Aiken uh, criteria, stage one, two, and three. A 0.3 increase is stage one in the creatinine. Doubling, or, yeah, doubling of your creatinine is stage two. Tripling is stage three, right, uh, in general. So we applied these criteria to, uh, to burns and showed that about a third of all comers, this is like from 0% to 100%, all comers, a third of burn patients get AKI of some sort, okay? And this is the difference between the two groups. Uh, relatively young population, but not all military. Most of our patients are actually civilian. You may be surprised to know because we're a regional burn center as well. So, so the question you may be asking is, well, does Aiken 1 really matter? Like 0.3 increase, does that matter? You know, small changes in, in your creatinine? Well, actually it does. So you could see that, that compared to no bumps in your creatinine at all throughout the entire hospitalization, a, even a small bump in your creatinine increases your, your risk of mortality by multiple fold. Even a small increase. And so you've got to pay attention to the small increases. Now, if you have stage 3, now you've got a problem. And historically, historically, when a patient developed AKI to the point where they needed, you know, they met criteria for dialysis, it was like the end game. Okay, 90 to 100% mortality. That's what was, has been reported over time, over decades. Okay, 90 to 100% mortality. This is the best kidney study, general critical care population, 30,000 patients, uh, all comers, critical care, 60% is the mortality if you need dialysis. Okay, so compared to the general critical care population, uh, if you ended up with AKI, severe AKI, you, you just, they were dead. And so at our center, when I showed up, um, the, the, the cycle was we would consult nephrology and nephrology would say, oh, patient doesn't meet criteria for dialysis and then you go fight back and forth. And then by the time they finally, you know, uh, agreed to it, they were too sick to undergo hemodialysis. We just didn't have an alternative. Uh, and so um, what we did, it, we just basically took a page out of shock trauma's playbook and we set up our own program, okay? Uh, so independent, uh, intensivist-driven CRT program uh, we, we basically uh, did only CVVH because, well, what, you, you know, if you do CVVH, why do the HD portion? Uh, just to simplify things. And we started treating patients, okay? And then looked at uh, the outcomes and compared them to historical controls because we had a bunch of uh, control patients who never got offered dialysis, and we just wanted to see what happened to them. And so we compared the two. These aren't all military patients, okay? These are about half and half. Uh, but you could see that these control patients, they just die off very quickly. Uh, and you're, you're saving some of these patients. So 28-day mortality, okay, CVVH, absolute risk reduction that's pretty dramatic. You're talking 25, 24%, okay, in-hospital mortality versus standard care, which was, by, at that time, no therapy. So this is a, although it's retrospective, I, I get the, the, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a flaw. But compared to nothing, something is better. Uh, so what we observed is that in patients that were really, really sick, like on multiple pressors, we would apply a higher dose of CVVH. And so in those patients, what I was seeing at the bedside was that they were getting better, and they were getting better rapidly. All right? So you can see patients who are on pressors when they, uh, you know, meet criteria for enrollment, and you can see those patients get better, and they come off pressors, while those control patients who are not treated stay on pressors. Okay? Not only that, their ARDS got better. 
their lungs got better. And this was without removing any fluid. All we're doing was isovolemic hemofiltration. We were not doing, taking any UF, okay? And so we took this experience and designed, this is back in 2009, and designed a randomized control trial. Uh, we submitted for a grant, got $3 million. And then eight years later, like last week, finally got this published, okay? It took a long time to do this study and it was, it was hard. Uh, and recruitment was very slow, uh, and I learned a lot of lessons. But finally, we got it published, and I'll, I'll share with you some of these findings. Okay, so, you know, based on our previous retrospective experience, we decided, hey, let's look at this in septic shock. Initially, I just wanted to look at septic shock with no uh, AKI, uh, but the FDA didn't allow us to do that. They said, oh, no, this is a renal replacement therapy machine. they got to have AKI, or else you've got to do it under uh, a, a, a IDE, investigational device exemption, which would have doubled the, the budget. And so we decided, okay, we need to include acute renal failure, and that's part of the reason we had such trouble recruiting these patients. Okay, so once criteria met, was met, septic shock with AKI, okay, uh, they were randomized to high volume, okay, uh, or control, and I, for the control group, I designed it so that it could be anything they did at that center, so community standard. So it could be hemodialysis, it could be CRT, it could be nothing, but uh, wild type control, that's how we designed it. And the, the, the treatment group, we said 70 cc's per keg per hour times 48 hours. Now, how, do I do, did I, how did I derive at this dose? Uh, it was the same dose that was being studied in Europe in a bigger trial called the IVERY trial, okay? So CVVH mode, and uh, as you know, with convective clearance, you're able to clear middle molecules, and thus the hypothesis was you're in the very, very sick patients, you're getting rapid metabolic control and removing cytokines and restoring hemostasis, okay? Homeostasis. Okay, and our primary endpoint, you know, initially I wanted to, uh, target mortality because we saw such a great effect um, in our retrospective study. But I uh, came to appreciate that no study in the history of mankind ever showed a mortality benefit of, you know, 30% absolute risk reduction. So maybe that was a little bit too, uh, you know, uh, uh, too far-fetched. So we decided to uh, make it conservative and, and decided early on that we were going to target vasopressor uh, need. And so, uh, we, so basically we created this index and we adopted it from another study and you're basically taking uh, various doses of vasopressors, so vasopressin, levofed, epinephrine, uh, normalizing them so you can add them together and creating a number, okay? So you can compare them to, to one another. Uh, we had a bunch of secondary endpoints. Uh, this is the vasopressor units, how we normalized it, okay? So everything had to be mics per kick per minute um, and then uh, and then we multiplied it. This is how we normalize it so we can add it together, okay? And then you uh, indexed it to MAP, uh, mean arterial pressure, uh, in order to compensate for, say, you know, one intensivist titrates to a MAP of 55 and another intensivist titrates to a MAP of 70 to compensate for that, okay? So that's the vasopressor dependency index. Um, so this is a patient flow diagram. Screened 4,000 patients. Think about this. I was, I mean, you know, all this money, uh, uh, invested into across 10 sites, you know, visiting all these sites and getting them all riled up and, and getting them all excited. Barely got 96 patients who were eligible. Uh, and then of those, a third got enrolled into the study. Uh, very, very tough to do the study. Um, uh, and so uh, fortunately, we had a rampant uh, period. And so uh, all uh, nine centers uh, participated and, and they had uh, nine patients who had received the therapy during the rampant period, so we lumped them together with the high-volume group, uh, and then we were able to, uh, to do some type of comparison. And really, at the end of the day, I was so deflated at the end of the study that I, I, you know, I was like, oh, we're not going to find anything. This is going to be crap. That's how I th what I thought when I was doing the analysis. Okay. So these are the demographics. These are older patients because we're taking from the civilian population now across nine burn centers in the, in the country. Uh, it turned out to be eight because one dropped out. Uh, mostly male. These are big burns, okay? Uh, about a third inhalation injury. There's no difference between the two groups. Third, uh, about 50%, 40% had ARDS on admission. This uh, ISS includes the burn size in the calculation, so doesn't necessarily mean concomitant trauma, but some of them did. Apache 2 score mods. Um, physiologic variables, you can see the maps are about the same. BUNs around 50 or so. Uh, creatinine's around 2.4. Uh, 
you know, one of the things that bothered me about the study was the fact that once they met criteria, we had to get consent. Yeah, that was a requirement for any ICU study when you're doing an intervention. And it took a while to get consent, at least 12 hours in most cases. And so by that time, things had changed. And so that's another thing. Uh, if we were to do this over again, I probably would try to figure out how to get consent beforehand. But that's very complicated. Uh, in the pre-hospital studies uh, around the country, they figured out how to do EFIC, exemption from informed consent for interventional studies. But that's just not something that we can do in the ICU. Okay? You got to do community like consultation and all that stuff to just not, uh, you know, be able to not consent them and, and enroll them immediately. Okay? But that's what you need sort of to, for this kind of study. Uh, you can see control patients, all of them got therapy. So this is not a, a comparison of therapy versus no therapy. Um, we capped the dose of therapy uh, uh, to a certain level so they could not get high volume. And then we did high volume in the 21 subjects. Okay, physiologic variables at 48 hours. And really, this is the bottom line here. Uh, you could see that of the patients that were on vasopressors, uh, in the high volume hemofiltration group, the same graph that you saw with the retrospective study. We replicated it in a randomized controlled trial. This works in helping patients come off pressors. At least that's what we observed in this randomized controlled trial. This is not retrospective, okay? I thought, oh man, we're gonna see some cool stuff with cytokines, there are gonna be some you know, uh, signals there. None whatsoever. We're not doing anything to the cytokines, circulating cytokines, okay? So now I'm thinking, well, what is going on? You know, why, why are these patients getting better? I think it's because you're getting better metabolic control. Not only that, their organ failure scores got better. Uh, mortality, we didn't power it to mortality, but you can see, you know, really there's no significant difference. Uh, our conclusion in the paper was that high volume hemophil filtration was effective in reversing shock, okay, and improving organ function and burns. Now, is that important, clinically relevant? I think so. If you, for every episode of septic shock in a burn patient who's dependent on microcirculation and perfusion to the wound beds to heal, to survive, you get them off pressures quicker, I think that makes a difference. You know, that, that's still a hypothesis, but, um, you know, this study is limited because you're only treating that first episode of shock, okay, and not treating every, other, every single episode. And I told you uh, the cycle happens over and over again. Okay, so I make the statement in the paper, whether reversal shock in these patients can improve survival is yet to be determined. Okay, so because we had such a hard time enrolling patients into this trial, we uh, rapidly came up with a prospective observational study design in order to capture data on these other patients who were going on CRT that weren't getting included in this trial. So very quickly, uh, these are uh, all the participating sites. We got 170 patients, okay, and this is uh, the general demographics. Uh, AKI stage, not all these patients are going on because of stage three. There are other reasons for going on CRT. You know, volume overload, uh, shock, uh, metabolic disturbance, or pH is six, nine, you know, stuff like that. That's, they're, they're not going on because of AKI alone, okay? Uh, initial mode, out of the 170 patients, most are getting going on uh, CVVH in the burn community. Uh, there are some that are using CVVHD, you could see, very few H, uh, HD. Um, the different modes on all patients that we were able to capture uh, long-term data, uh, you can see there's no difference. Uh, there seems to be a signal with CVVH, but not enough power to detect the difference, okay? But there's maybe something there in patients that are in shock. So it's sort of, if you didn't believe the rescue data, you know, you probably don't believe this data, but put together, it's saying the same thing, that, that CVVH could potentially at certain doses be effective in reversing shock and uh, maybe improving outcomes. Uh, what's interesting here is that now in our burn community, we've gone to the model, the shock trauma model, where uh, we're, we're just running our own CRT. So most patients in, uh, in, in burns, uh, burn surgeons are prescribing CRT, okay? Uh, I was interested in comparing outcomes between the nephrology consult mandated centers and the intensivist run CRT centers, okay? So this is comparing the integrated model versus a consultative model. So integrative means the intensivists are running the show, right? And so if we were killing patients, for example, there'd be a huge difference, right? No difference whatsoever. Whether you get nephrology involved or whether you run your own CRT, there's no difference in the various burn centers of the you know, 170 patients that we captured, okay? Initial labs, you could see 
uh, BUN, creatinine, around the same as the rescue study. Uh, these are prescribed blood flow doses, relatively high. It makes sense. These patients are highly metabolically deranged. So going at 20 cc's, 25 cc's per kick per hour, you know, when their pH is 7.1 and they're on three pressors and, you know, met highly metabolically deranged, doesn't make sense. You've got to get them under control um, initially, okay? Duration, you can see. Uh, anticoagulation, about a third and third and third. Um, hospital mortality, about 50%. Long-term, need for long-term renal replacement therapy. So this was surprising to us. They were discharged. If they survived, how many needed renal replacement therapy upon discharge? I thought it was going to be very few, but it turns out it's about 21%, so one out of every five. Maybe those patients later come off, but we didn't look at that. We're, we're going to look at that very soon. I think it uh, knocks it down to about 10%, still higher than what we expected. So this is what we conclude. This paper is not written yet. Uh, I promise we'll have it to you by next year. Timely initiation of RT with an individualized preference towards continuous modes at a relatively higher than recommended dose has become standard practice in burns with AKI. I, we could probably say this for trauma too, uh, and is associated with a historically low mortality, 49%. That's about, that's better than the best kidney study. Okay. All right, so very quick, inhalation injury. I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna go pretty fast. So inhalation injury is a, smoke and inhalation injury is a chemical injury where uh, the uh, products of combustion sort of uh, work on the uh, bronchial epithelium. Okay, so this is a house fire, so patient found down in a house fire. That's when you see true smoke inhalation injury. Okay, you can see, the, you can see underneath this fibrinaceous soot, uh, you could see uh, some erosions occurring. This is what happens over days. And then, so the cilia are completely decimated and you have hypersecretion of mucus and all this stuff. And then these patients get pneumonia. It's pretty bad, and then they heal. This patient got extubated, did okay. Uh, got a VAP, but it's okay. Uh, so what ventilator mode is best? Okay, so in our uh, burn center, uh, we advocate the use of the VDR. It's a high-frequency percussive ventilator. Uh, I'm not gonna, I can talk an hour on just this alone, but it's essentially uh, uh, small subtitle breaths that are pushed forward on top of each other, stacked on top of each other, and what it does is it creates this countercurrent flow and sputum comes up. It's internal chest PT. Okay. And so you could see why that could be helpful in burns where they have no cilia, no way of bringing up sputum in a hypersecretion uh, problem, right? And so we wanted to look at this uh, back in 2008 in, in burns. So uh, up to this point, we had had all sorts of retrospective studies and said, hey, we got to use high frequency, and, but there had been no control trial. So uh, this, we did this. Uh, another very tough study to do, uh, but we, we got it done. Single center over three years, uh, 31 patients. This I, I was, uh, you know, explaining to folks that uh, our infrastructure for research is such that the PI can leave and deploy for six months and come back, and their patients enrolled into your study. So that that was the luxury I had with this study. Uh, so high frequency percussive ventilation versus we used uh, six cc's per kilo. Okay, so ARDSnet, strict ARDSnet. I mean, we followed that. PEEP and FiO2 titration table to a T, okay? And, and uh, measured everybody, all that stuff. Everything you would do at ARSNET. Um, uh, about half were combat injured. Um, these are the initial settings, okay? Uh, outcomes. So we, our primary outcome was ventilator-free days. There was no difference, really no difference in any measure, except more patients in the low tidal volume group needed to be rescued because they were dying, okay? Uh, so oxygenation, no difference, or actually there's a, there is a difference, but then like later on, most of these low tidal volume group patients got crossed over, so that's why you're seeing that convergence. Uh, and then uh, smoke inhalation injury, most of the patients that got rescued were smoke inhalation injury patients, okay? So uh, I'll give you the bottom line here. Oh, so when they got rescued, they got rescued to either uh, APRV or high frequency percussive, and these are the patients that got rescued. So you could see that these patients are not doing that well, okay? And so, uh, conclusion, no difference in primary outcome, uh, better oxygenation with high-frequency percussive ventilation, okay? But a third of the patients needed to be rescued. If they had inhalation injury, two out of every three patients needed to be rescued, okay? So what does this say about high-frequency? It doesn't say anything about high-frequency, okay? It may say that it's just as good as low tidal volume, okay? But what it does say is that strict adherence to ARSNET 
in some patient populations, like burns, doesn't work. How many of you have tried to do strict ARDSNET in a hypercatabolic patient who's hypermetabolic with a high minute ventilation and they have abdominal compartment syndrome, et cetera, and you're trying to do low tidal volume? It doesn't work. I mean, you got to do all sorts of different things. It's very challenging. Okay, so do what you want, you know, in burns, put them on ARDSNET, whatever, but be ready to fail. Okay, that's what I say. Individualized approach is really what you need to do. So ARDS in burns, uh, the Berlin definition came out in 2012, so we applied it in our patient population, and what we found was similar to uh, AKI. There's about a 30% prevalence, uh, 30%, per, 30 patients per year. Uh, for every stage of the ARDS, mortality increases. Uh, how about severe ARDS? Uh, I advocate the four Ps, okay? Lung protection, paralyzed, prune, and prone, and nowadays there's a fifth P put on ECMO. And so we've been doing this. We've been skipping the prone and going straight to ECMO a lot of times. And we've been doing this in burns. And you're probably thinking, ECMO in burns? That's not, that's not right. People die. Uh, that used to be the case. Uh, last, this heat year, there are two publications that came out. This is an ELSO registry uh, uh, survey or uh, look. And they looked at um, uh, 58 who were enrolled in the ELSO registry, 43% survival. Uh, this is in the NBR, National Burn Repository, about 47% survival in the 30 burns that they counted. Um, this is a patient, 18-year-old, uh, who kept on, uh, we couldn't clear his lactate, wasn't oxygenating, uh, so we inserted a second cannula, double ECMO. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't survive, but uh, we, we tried to keep him alive as much as we could. Young guy, too bad. So anyway, so this is our collective experience. You know, in the beginning, we were uh, afraid of that these patients with open wounds on full heparin, that would be a problem. You would imagine uh, you probably would think the same. Um, but we've done 16 patients thus far in burns alone. Uh, we've done about 60 patients total uh, in the last three years, but 16 burn patients. And this is something that we've, uh, we've written up and we're trying to get published now. Uh, six deaths. Uh, only one from uh, spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, since uh, that intracranial hemorrhage, we started decreasing our doses and targets for heparin. And so we're shooting for like 0.3 on an factor 10 ASA. I don't know if you do the same. Uh, and we have a 62% survival. Okay. All right, so I try to think in terms of most. What's most is multi-organ support therapy. This is something that you guys do here. Uh, this is not a, a new concept. Uh, it's been written about for years. Uh, this is our attempt to do single-pass albumin dialysis, SPAD. Uh, this is before we had TPE. Uh, and so before we had TPE, we had to be, get creative in order to do liver support. So we used albumin. We, insert, like, we infused albumin into the dialysate and used the albumin as a countercurrent uh, to pull off bilirubin. Okay? This doesn't work very well. It does pull off bilirubin, but not enough. And so you need to do TPE. So once we got the TPE cartridges, we started doing TPE for liver support. And this has been uh, uh, published, uh, and not, this is not our center, but in the, there's a collective experience in the community. Uh, and you could see that, you know, out of 31 patients, some of them have chronic liver failure, toxic hepatitis, various conditions. And, and you know, people, when, when we started doing liver support, people accused me of, well, you can't do that. You're not a transplant center. What are you going to do, bridge them to nowhere? I said, no. Some people, some of these patients survive. What, why would you just let them die? And so you could see, based on this experience, TPE for liver support, there are clearly some survivors here. Look at this. Out of 10 toxic hepatitis, six survive. This is without transplant. You don't need a transplant center to do liver support. Okay? It's not a bridge to nowhere. This is a patient that we're doing ECMO, double CRT, metabolically deranged, and then liver support. That's most. Okay? Now we have MARS, and you guys have experience with MARS. Uh, we're trying to get, uh, we're very close to acquiring a few MARS machines. This is experience uh, here, uh, and it's a very nice paper. I was so excited when you guys published this. Uh, but eventually what we need is something that you know, like consolidates all these machines into one machine. Okay, that's way uh, far away, but uh, that would be nice. Okay, optimizing nutrition is, in, uh, is important, um, optimizing the conditions of wound healing. One thing that you should know is uh, in terms of uh, burn patients, you can't, and this is true for trauma patients, you can't just overfeed them because all those extra calories would just get converted into fat. You've got, you got to figure out how to combine calories, exercise them, and use them as substrate to build muscle. And so in this study done by Dr. Wolf, you could see that extra calories just creates more fat. Okay? Um, so we use beta blockers. 
Okay, this is in a, uh, a study in children. Uh, uh, propranolol, you may uh, have heard of propranolol being used to, uh, uh, to impact the hypercatabolic state of burns, and then oxandrolone, multi-center trial that showed that oxandrolone improves outcomes and preserves lean uh, muscle mass in burns, prolonged hypercatabolic state. These hypercatabolic patients, these burns, can be hypercatabolic for up to two years after burn. Okay? And I'm, I'm sure that most of your major multi-trauma patients experience something very similar. Okay? Uh, appropriate antibiotics uh, is not something I, you know, I want to go in depth. One thing I want to uh, point out is uh, you know, we're, we're like the tip of the spear in terms of multi-drug resistant uh, organisms. And in the past 15 years, this is a report of three, but I've had four organisms that are pan-resistant to everything. Pan-resistant to colistin even. Okay, four, MIC of four, or 40 to colistin. Nothing else works. Everything else is res, uh, resistant. How many of you, uh, have you encountered anything similar? Any organisms? So this is coming. It started in our burn unit. This is going to spread. And you're hearing about this KPC-producing organisms. There's one uh, uh, in JAMA that was published uh, out of China. This highly virulent uh, KPC-producing uh, ESBL. Uh, there's the New Delhi strain. All this stuff is coming. And this is the end of modern medicine as we know it. Okay? You know, th this is true. It's coming. Uh, so DARPA, okay, this is an exciting project that, that I want to tell you about. So DARPA has been thinking about this for a while. And DARPA was created when, like, the Russians uh, launched Sputnik. And we were like, we'll never be defeated technologically again. Okay? And then, so they created DARPA and just threw a bunch of money at it. Uh, $2 billion a year DARPA has money, and, and they, you know, if you want to do something cool, uh, join DARPA. Uh, they have something called the Lucand, so all these patients came back with like, uh, no extremities and amputations, so they, somebody created a, a hand that is connected to your brain and you can move your hand. It, it's pretty cool. Anyway, so this is DARPA, and they come up with these crazy ideas, and one of the crazy ideas is uh, this concept called dialysis-like therapeutics, where uh, you basically can detect you should be able to detect pathogens in the blood real time and then uh, put them on a therapy to remove them. And you're like, does that make sense? Why would you do that? Uh, so there's tons of, you know, th this was a, uh, let's see, $150 million stud, uh, uh, program and a bunch of uh, places got funded. Uh, Donningbers at uh, the Wies Institute at Harvard. Uh, they have a, a spleen on a chip that does essentially what the program called for. This is a hemopurifier. This was actually uh, placed on a patient that had Ebola, high viral count of Ebola, put on this therapy, and they removed all the uh, virus uh, within three days. Uh, Cytosorb, you may have heard about. So these are companies that, that now have spawned from the DARPA project. Okay? Now, the, the program is almost finished. Okay? So this is a, uh, this is a, uh, uh, a company that looked at um, uh, removing uh, CRE, and it's doable. They are able to successfully remove CRE. Um, this is very exciting. Uh, this is a new molecule. It's a uh, mannose binding lectin that binds to bacterial wall and bacterial fragments. And so they're, they're translating this into a diagnostic where you're able to, you know, how many times do you get a culture in somebody who's sick and it's culture negative, right? It's because the body's already, like, destroying the bacteria. Well, this is able to detect bacterial fragments. And so you're, you'll be able to see positive MBL negative blood culture, those patients get sick, okay? So that study's ongoing right now. But this is a new company that just got, that, that was spawned, uh, that's uh, created because of this DARPA program. Uh, and they're able to remove these MBL fragments. Other spin-offs that are exciting, now, I, I don't know if you're excited as I am, but this is very exciting. This is TLP. This is t uh, tethered liquid plethorocarbon. And what it does is based on this uh, uh, pitcher plant where it's just like you, no, nothing sticks to it, okay? And so they adopted this bio-inspired technology and uh, made it into uh, a product. And they, coat, they can coat anything, including extracorporeal circuits. Okay? They can coat the entire ECMO circuit. And they've uh, looked at uh, vascular shunts. Okay? And they're able to circulate blood for like 40 days, no anticoagulation. Pretty cool, huh? Let's think about that. Try doing, coating your ECMO circuit with this stuff and not having to anticoagulate, okay? All right, so most patients die uh, uh, off with fungus. In burn patients, they die of fungus. I'm going to go very quick here. Um, you know, we, we are now getting to the point where if I suspect um, 
uh, invasive fungal wound infection, I'll go with Crisemba because it has the least toxicity and, and it's effective against everything, okay? Uh, and then preventing complications. Uh, I want to end there. Uh, emphasizes the race against time. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, can you explain the uh, FFP resuscitation sort of thought process and like behind its utility? Right. So, I mean, like I said before, it's going to be limited by, um, by uh, availability and, and, and uh, uh, what you have in stock. Uh, but I'm not really sure why it doesn't affect the glycocalyx. I think there's a lot of shearing that's going on when you're introducing a foreign agent into the bloodstream. Uh, albumin does so less, but clearly, I mean, this is not, we're not the only lab that, that has demonstrated shedding of glycocalyx and uh, uh, destruction of uh, uh, the barriers uh, when crystalloids are used. And, and although normal saline is worse than a balanced solution like uh, LR or P-Lite, um, the best is FFP. Now, if you can somehow mass produce FFP and the qualities of FFP and infuse that, that's probably your, the way to go. Obviously, we've been at this for decades. Many people have been at this for decades with Hextan, Head of Stars, all this stuff. Uh, but really, I mean, I think we're just reinventing the wheel because people have known this for a very long time that FFP is probably the a preferred resuscitative agent. But if you have lots of stock and you have a patient and you're trying to, you know, fine-tune things and not hurt them, you probably would be better off doing whole blood and FFP instead of using any crystalloid. But that's way out there. You guys wouldn't adopt things that are way out there. Sir? Do you have any data on when you look back? It may not be the cytokines as sort of originally hypothesized, and certainly there's lots of studies, small studies that show, you know, the hemodynamic benefit. So I think that's been reproduced nicely. Right. And of course, we don't know the outcome link there yet. But uh, uh, the thought that normalization, metabolic reconditioning of the patient, mm -hmm. how quickly can you say that there's anything related to how time to normalization yeah. may I, have I, an impact? I dissected our data up and down, our sample size is so small, I can't make uh, any, you know, I can't conclude anything definitive. Uh, all I can say is from these data uh, that um, it wasn't cytokines. It was not removal of cytokines that made the difference, at least in this data set. I mean, I, I looked at it in many different ways. We think it's metabolic control, but I, I, haven't, I don't have any uh, understanding or I haven't looked at closely timing, you know, sort of correlating it to timing, et cetera. Yeah, but you did show like a dose. Do you have a dose-dependent uh, thought it's, about it, that? It's hard to show because we only did 70 cc's yep. per kg versus whatever else they were using. I think we can, if we had collected uh, serum in the observational patients, uh, we could have seen something. Uh, but, uh, you know, that study needs to get done still. Uh, right. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know about it. who else is going to do this study. Uh, nobody and uh, we had all the resources in the world, and we were, in, were barely able to uh, get 36 patients. I don't think this study will ever get done in the burn population. Right. Well, I think the burn population really is a group that needs to be resuscitated, but right. the sting of resuscitation is really obvious. Right. Uh, there's right. no wiggle room there, so mm -hmm. you know these therapies may have a that you may be able to show things better in this particular group for sure. Right. And and that's why there are some centers that have uh, begun resuscitating with FFP and the. Uh, you know, transfusion medicine at each of these institu those institutions are freaking out. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Just a terrific talk, Dr. Chung. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And for the audience, there's nothing in the military uh, that Dr. Chung hasn't had his name all over. I mean, he's an absolutely world-class international leader in this, so we're really lucky to have him today. Two quick questions. One, your last comments about fungal infections. Have you looked at using prophylactic fluconazole? And my second question, um, just for the benefit of our audience as well, what is your choice of functional hemodynamic monitoring to assess fluid volume status in your population? Do you use ultrasound? Do you, yeah. do you guys use the PICO, LIDCO? Right. Um, thanks. Okay, so great questions. Uh, and so in terms of prophylaxis, uh, we know that because people die uh, because of the fungus, they, they can get invasive uh, fungal wound infections and die because of fungus. There's a certain subgroup of patients that we think very uh, early on, hey, we should think about doing prophylaxis. It's not applied to everybody, 
but you know some of those that are like younger, uh, you know, clearly survivable, we'll say let's throw let's throw this on, on them. And so, like I said, we're going with Crescemba for those patients. We don't use Diflucan because you know Diflucan only uh, the yeast is not going to touch the mold, and, and these burn patients have mold problems. And I, I have this hypothesis. You know, have you ever been in a burn center? It's like 100 degrees. You know. That's been the mantra and dogma for years. And we're trying to get at, well, is, that's a problem. Like, if you were storing food, would you put it in 100-degree weather, you know, degree, uh, degree room, humid? I mean, you're optimizing the conditions of fungus, you know? And so, and I don't know if you've ever participated in a, a burn wound excision or, or a dressing change. Like, people are sweating on the burn wound. They, they do, like, go through this drill where they're scrub and down up, and then they're like, Dripping sweat onto the burn wood. What the hell is that? And so I'm trying to, uh, trying to look at maybe decreasing the temperature. We can regulate the patient's temperature you know, in other ways. Let's decrease the environmental temperature so that you're not sweating on the wound. Anyway, so that's a personal thing. Um, so in terms of uh, fancy uh, uh, you know, sort of tools to use in terms of volume assessment, I've gotten to the point where I, I rely heavily on volume challenges and as a diagnostic maneuver. Uh, and just being at the bedside and looking at the patient over time and, and assessing what's happened up to that point, none of the fancy tools that I've come across is better than that. And so you can use those fancy tools along with your clinical acumen and sort of bedside observations, but you can't just use the tech technology uh, by itself. Uh, and so there's a nice paper that, that looked at... Um, uh, you know, a glide scope and the success rate for intubations, right? And uh, re regular DL versus glide scope, and there was no difference. And, and really, uh, they compared a bunch of uh, trainees. Like, if you look at the patient population, it was very few attendings. It was all trainees, mostly, like 85%. And what that told me is you can, you can put technology in the hands of any inexperienced provider, it's not going to make a difference. It's uh, really about the experience. Um, and so that, that's, that's the bottom line there. All right, thank you very much for your attention. Thanks. Thanks.